know there have still been those that rejected him, but that have all known who he really was. I wonder how many would have left the crowd that day as they cried out, crucify him. I wonder how many would fall on their faces pleading for mercy instead of death. That the body they were hanging on that tree is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world for your sins and mine. I'm so thankful that He gave Himself for medicine for you and I. And you can be seated in just a moment. Later in the service, we're going to be taking communion together as the body of Christ. So we want to go ahead and get a count for those that would like to participate. Uh, we'll have both grape juice and wine, uh, depending on whether your age or your addiction leads you to one or to the other. Uh, so first of all, all those that would like to participate with grape juice, uh, please raise your hand for your state. Uh, you don't have to stay. It's good to that. Let us stand for you. Anybody that's going to participate with grape juice? Please stand up. You can be seated. If anybody else who's going to participate with wine, please stand as well. If you can't stand, you've got to raise it up high. So. Jesus. The deed had already been done. 
price had already been paid. It was only a matter of time now. And the one that had already collected the ransom said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. The book of Proverbs, chapter 28. I'm going to read a scripture to you that likely just doesn't come up in this kind of service. But Proverbs, chapter 28, and verse 21 says, To have respect of persons is not good. Or for a piece of bread. That man will transgress. That if you hold a man in the wrong esteem, if you treat him in a way differently than what one ought to be treated, the man that does that will sin. He'll transgress for something as simple. Preach to you from a little while tonight about the peace of bread. We lift up our hands, our voices, and let's worship the Lord. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the body that you gave for our souls, for the blood that you shed on Calvary, that we might be saved. Lord, we thank you for your sweet presence in this house tonight. Oh, Lord, we're asking you to let your glory fill this place. Lord, let it bring us all together as your body. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the word of the Lord. Now, I think it's, it's easy at times for, for those of us that have been around the bend a few times, those of us that have been around this church thing for a while, to, to fall into routine. It is easy for us to fall into a rhythm or fall into a pattern. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with routine in and of itself. I mean, you need to get out of bed in the morning to groove yourself, and so you have a routine. And even in a spiritual sense, you need to devote time every day to prayer and to the Word of God. And so you need to build that into your routine. In fact, it has been said by many over the years that we are creatures of habit, and I believe we need to use the power of habit for good. We need to use the power of, of getting into a rhythm and a routine of things to make sure that the right things get done all the time. And in fact, the very events of the Last Supper were supposed to be routine. They were supposed to be repeated and normal and something that every single one of these good Jewish men would have been familiar with their whole lives. The, the Passover cedar, as it's called, or the meal of the Passover that, 
that Jews celebrate or in the midst of celebrating all around the world right now. It's really a thing of theater. I don't mean to say that in a bad sense. I just mean to say that it, there's a part and a place for everything that, that needs to happen. Everybody that is there gathered in that hole for that meal has, has a place to sit around the table or in the house. And at different times during the meal, there are questions that are asked by specific people at specific times in specific courses so that very valuable spiritual lessons can be taught and can be learned. Just as one example is customary for the youngest member, the youngest boy that is there at the table to ask the man at the head of the table, daddy or grandpa, whoever it may be, why is it that we have this meal? Why is it that we celebrate this meal in the way that we do? And it's so that that man can stand up and, and remind his family that the day came a long, long time ago when they were enslaved and in bondage in Egypt and God delivered their people with a strong hand led them out of that sinful nation. Everything is routine and everything is, is rote so that those lessons would never be forgotten of what God did on that fateful night in Egypt. But this Passover would become different than all the others. This supper would become the last supper that the disciples shared with their Lord and with their Savior. And in fact, this meal would be the one that would change the lesson that was to be learned. I don't like the one part of the Passover observance, but I've come to tell you, we've got a greater revelation of the deliverance of God today than they had back then. Because we know who Jesus was, and we know that he was a lamb slain for our sins. That night changed everything forever. It would later open their eyes to exactly who Jesus truly was. Because as generations of Jews throughout the ages had eaten roasted lamb to remember Pharaoh's defeat, the Lamb of God was now sitting before them. And he would look into their eyes and tell them, take this bread, for it is my body that I will give. Aren't you thankful to God that He became the Passover Lamb that could deliver us not from a nation and not from a national border, but He could deliver us from the power of sin unto God. So thankful for what God did for you and I. But even in all of His glory, even in everything that we remember so vividly about what we're going to do here tonight, it is easy for us to overlook just how much was done. Everything that took place that night with the disciples, it's easy for us to, to fail to see everything that Jesus did. Because we understand there was a betrayer there. But was there something else that was going on? Was there some other narrative that was afoot amongst those that were gathered there with the Lord Jesus? Luke chapter 22, just another place in Scripture that tells us of the same night and of the same meal, but told by a different apostle. Luke 
22, verse 21, he writes, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom is betrayed. It sounds just like the other passage. But it goes on in the next verse to say this. And they, all of them, and they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? There was a betrayer. There was someone that would turn their back on Jesus and sell out the Son of the living God. But there were 11 other men. They were embroiled in dispute as to which of them was the greatest. That was... I'm not making light. I'm not going to belittle the horrible treachery of Judas' betrayal one bit. But this whole lot had a problem. This whole gathering had an issue that night that had been simmering and boiling for a long time amongst all of them. John chapter 13, another writer, another apostle, describing the same night and the same event. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. This job in any Jewish home would have been reserved for a servant. And it would have been reserved for the lowest of the servants. The least privileged, the least experienced, the one with the least tenure, the one that wasn't invested in his retirement program yet. It would have been his or her job when guests came to the door to get down on their hands and knees and clean their broken, dirty, bleeding feet. And yet the Lord himself gets up, wraps a towel around his waist as they would have seen servants do countless times before, and he got down on his hands and knees and began to wash their feet. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. 
Lord, if this is what I've got to do to have a part with you, then wash it all. God, if this is going to keep me from taking part in what's going to happen here tonight, then wash everything. I wonder how many come into the house of God at times with a mindset as to whether I sit on the front row or the back. Whether I get to sing or whether I don't. Whether I get praised or whether I get punished. I just want to be near Jesus. But Jesus said unto him, He that is washed, he doth not say to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. He tells them that they're all clean, but one of them is not. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So after he washed their feet and taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Do you know why I did this? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. All of these brothers were getting an object lesson in humility. They were getting an object lesson of how things work in the kingdom of God. But, but in the midst of everything that Jesus did in teaching him this, he did not deny who he was. He may have shown him his power through humility and obedience, but he told them, you say, well, that I'm your master and your Lord because I am. Verse 16 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. But when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Now, I'm not saying this just to reiterate so that you'll remember it a little better than normal. All of these men had a problem. And all 12 had a problem. Their value system was all wrong. The way that they looked at things was all wrong. The way that they looked at their Lord and their Master. The way that they looked at each other. The way that they looked at the things of God. The way that they looked for the kingdom of God was all messed up and upside down. I don't know what they all said to each other, either in the Lord's presence or not, but there was, there was probably plenty of bragging and probably plenty of arrogance to go around as they debated who was the greatest. 
greatest. While the greatest was getting down on the floor. The greatest was washing feet. The greatest in the room was in the least likely place for him to ever be. You see, they misunderstood the things that truly mattered to God. Because God valued servanthood over power. He values humility over pride. He values brotherly love more than the love of this world. But perhaps it is clear from the words of the Lord that despite this dispute that they had, despite this problem that was going on between them, he said, you're all clean, but not all. They're all a work in progress. They're all walking in the grace and the mercy of God. They're all living by faith, except the one that shall betray me. And he said it would be better if he'd never been born. Perhaps no one had a greater problem with valuing things than Judas. I started reading to you in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. If you go back to that same chapter, and you go backwards just a few verses before they ever sat down at the table, you will see that the word says in verse 15, and Jesus, this is Judas, said unto them, What will ye give me? Judas had called to the authorities. Everybody knew they were looking for Jesus. That was the word on the street. They, and they, everybody knew they were looking for Jesus. It was just going to take somebody to make a deal. To sell him out. And he says, what will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Now we're familiar with this phrase. We're familiar with this, with this description of what is given because growing up, it was the offering that you brought on Easter. And I'm going to ask you tonight to do the same thing this year. But, but it was just something normal. As children, you'd run around and you'd go five, 30 dimes or, or 30 quarters. Or, or if you really had a good year at Christmas, you wouldn't have any silver dollars or something. I don't know. Fifty cent pieces or something. It was symbolic. It was, it was a gesture and also an offering so that you would remember that the Lord was sold for 30 pieces of silver. But I ask you this question. Where did they come up with this? Where did they come up with this amount? I mean, was it just what they had in their wallets that day? Was it just what was remaining in the treasury? I mean, what is the going rate for betrayal? What is the market price for a stench? How did they come up on this price? I don't know if there was a bargain that took place or not, but it doesn't look that way in Scripture. He just says, how much will you give me? And they offered him 30 pieces of silver. You see, the price had been set a long time ago. 
Zechariah chapter 11. Long before a man named Jesus would ever claim to be God. One of the prophets of old began to speak and began to write the words of the Lord in verse 10 of chapter 11. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. How do I know this is relevant? The Lord Jesus sat at the table that fateful night and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The prophet had said, the day is going to come when the Lord is going to break his staff called beauty and break his covenant that he had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. You see, this prophecy is from the perspective of a shepherd. It was written as if the shepherd is standing there with his staff. And he breaks it, and it breaks the covenant he made with all the people. And it says, and so the poor of the flock, the sheep that waited upon me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, <coughs> If you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. If you feel as if I've done a good job shepherding your sheep, if you feel that I've done a good job watching over your flocks, then pay me my price. And if not, don't bother. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. I mean, this makes this thing, just a simple reading of the scripture makes you wonder that the people of the Sanhedrin, you know, the, the chief priests and the elder, that they had to have known. How could they not have seen it? They, they knew the words of the prophet. They read them possibly a thousand times in their life. How apparent is this? Were they really that devious? Did they really know that it was their Messiah that they were about to destroy and they wanted to make sure themselves that they fulfilled the prophecy? No. Certainly. Maybe there were those in that day, I'm sure there were, because there were the disciples, there were his followers. Certainly there were those that had had the revelation of who he was. But as Jesus would later say, while he was hanging on that cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's hard for us to understand how they could have ever heard that term, 30 pieces of silver, and as they counted it out, the bells not went off and said, oh my goodness, what are we doing? But it's because we don't rightly understand the They weren't thinking about the prophecy of Zechariah, but they were doling out the silver. They weren't looking into the scroll to determine the price to pay for the great shepherd of their souls. So why? Why 30 pieces of silver? We don't really know how much money it was. Even in that day, there are estimates of different degrees. All we really know is that it was a paltry sum. It 
wasn't a lot of money at all. But why 30 pieces of silver? You see, it goes back much farther than Zechariah. It teaches us a very important lesson about Jesus. Book of Exodus, chapter 21. Buried down in the midst of you know, those scriptures, there are times you read them but you wonder why it was necessary to preserve them. They seem outdated. They seem obsolete. They seem like they don't have a great deal of relevancy because life is, is different and is it really necessary? It's right in the middle of that section of your Bible. Exodus chapter 21 and verse 28 says, If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned. His flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. It says if somebody's ox kills somebody, they're going to kill the ox. And the owner will have paid his debt for the part of his but if the ox were want to push, if he was prone to do that with his horn in time past, and he had been testified to his owner, and he had not kept him in, he didn't see to it that this dangerous animal was, was kept in a fence, but that he had killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stolen, and his owner also shall be put to death. If you knowingly and willingly let a dangerous animal on the loose and did nothing to keep it in, and you knew that it had tried and, and maybe even killed people before, and you did nothing about it, and then it goes and it hurts somebody else, you're going to give your life for it. That sounds pretty harsh. But the next verse says, If there be laid on him a sum of money, then he shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him. What does that mean? It means that if an ox kills a person and the situation proves that the owner is culpable in the death, then the law says that the life of the owner can be taken. But... The surviving family, those that are mourning their lost loved one, if they so chose, could name their price, and the offender could pay the blood ransom, and his life would be spared. He could save his own life if he was willing to pay the price given to him by the surviving family. But here's the caveat. He didn't get to set the price. The price was set by whatever the father of the dead daughter had to say about it. Or whatever the mother of the dead son felt that he needed to pay as restitution for being reckless and negligent in the care of the ox. Whatever the price was. Ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a billion dollars. Whatever the price was. The owner had to pay it to save his own life. Verse 31 says, Whether he have gored a son or have gored a daughter, 
to this judgment shall it be done unto him. Name your price, your lost son. Come on, morning mama. Name your price for your lost daughter. And I can be saved if I'm willing to pay it. But here's the thing. That's for a son. That's the law for a daughter. That's the law for somebody that is close, is near, is dear to you. That's the price for someone that I highly value. You see, I, I love all of y'all, but in this world, there's, there's nobody that I place a higher value on than my wife and my children. They mean everything to me, and I'll give my life for them. I'll go hungry if I have to go hungry for them to eat. If I had a choice, I'd rather be sick than they be sick. I'd rather hurt than I would them hurt. I know we don't always get that choice, but, but as a daddy, if I get to make the choice, that's going to be what it is. Because they are valuable to me. But there isn't a price too high for me to pay for them. That's the law for a son or a daughter. But the next verse says, if the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver. The ox shall be Disciples that night were all struggling with what mattered to God. They were all wrestling with what made them more valuable in the sight of heaven. But Judas was sitting at the table and Christ, a mere servant, jingling his pocket. Of Jesus says, Master, you just didn't think 
know all the value of as a teacher, as a rabbi, as a leader, certainly God, the Savior of his soul. He was simply just another servant. Value was nothing. He was the most valuable man that's ever lived. He was the man that, that would undo the curse of sin. He is the man that, that there's no limit to his grace and his mercy. He's the one that you and I, to this day, when we sin for the millionth time, we go back to an altar and we find grace and we find mercy. That man, he was the man that he himself testified. He said they marvel at Solomon, but there's a greater than Solomon as here. That's the man that was in the room with them. That is the God that stood before them. tell you that council wanted him so badly. Yeah. Judas could have named his price. They went and got the treasury chests and they popped them open and they said just take this to where Jesus is. He was just another commodity. He traded away. Translation says it this way, a man may do all that for a piece of bread. The Jewish commentator explains that when it says a man that sins, it's a man that will pervert justice. How more perverted than justice have all that for their Lord and their master. John 12 and 1 shows us what was in the heart of Judas. 
that Jesus six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him supper. Martha served. But Lazarus was one of the other that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary. Pound of ointment of spiker, very costly. Very costly. It's been estimated by some that a pound of spiker in that day would have been the equivalent of a year's wages. The average man. Mary would take three meals a day, the roof over her head, her ear, break it, pour it She anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the odor of the ointment. But unfortunately, then saith one of his disciples, Judas is carried, Simon's son, which should be traitor. I was not this ointment's soul. For 300 pins given to the poor. This he said, not that he cared before, because he was a thief. He had him back. There was the Judas was there. Judas was there with a simple woman named Mary. So this is how much I think it's This is what he means to me. She broke it. She anointed his feet. That same man that was there and knew the market value of the oil. And that man stood before that council and said, What do you give me? Soul. Judas would be one of the twelve that sat around that table that night. Judas would get his feet washed. Judas sat in a place of honor at the table. Judas was there when the Lord took the bread and broke it. 
disciples. In just a few weeks. Would be there on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Ghost would be poured out. And they would be filled with the power of His Spirit. And they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that body that was broken and that blood that was shed had taken all their sins away and saved their souls. Every one of them would walk out the doors of that field clean by the word of the Lord. Except Judas. All Judas died. It's a piece of bread. You see, he'd take those 30 shekels. But when he realized what he'd done, he'd throw them back at their feet. Come out and give his own life. Because he tried to find repentance but couldn't find it. So in the end, eleven men found salvation in God. They found hope and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Because even though it took a little while, they realized who He was. They realized the value that had within Him. They realized that there was nobody like Jesus. But all Judas got was a piece of bread. Because he never valued him. He never saw him for who he was. He sold him for the price of that man that got his hands and knees. He washed him for his feet. As you stand to your feet tonight. If you've never before seen the value of Jesus, this altar's open for you. If you've let it slip, your relationship with God somehow found itself at the bottom of the agenda for too long. This altar's open for you to stir it back up. Don't leave the house of God tonight. To not know who Jesus is. Not know the salvation that you have to him. We're going to take this supper together in just a few moments. It's not that. I wish God to lift our hands towards heaven.